Well, good morning one more time. Welcome to Encounter Church. Hey, if, uh, if you're a guest worshiping with us this morning for the first time, or if summer schedules have brought you away for a little while, I want to welcome you into the series that we're working through right now. We're taking the entire month of July and looking at what it means to live a selfless life. Actually, to be more specific about that, we're taking the month of July in the Selfless series to look at what it means to live a God-centered life in a me-centered world. And we heard last week, remember, that doesn't come to us naturally. That's not kind of what, what we just go to in a resting state as an act of selflessness. It's just the opposite. So it, it feels a little odd. It feels funny. It feels like we're pushing against the grain. But as we see in like the video, that image of the, of the cup breaking apart, when we act with a selfish life, when we live for ourselves, we will break, we will crack under that pressure, but God does the most amazing things with cracked pots. So we're taking a look at this series, Selfless, and as we get into it this morning, and I do want to jump right into our Bible study this morning, because I think I may have overprepared, and I don't want to run out of time, but, uh, but, but I, want to, I want us all to focus in on this one like, question, this one moment or in life that you will be in a season of at one point or another. It's that, it's that moment in life when you come right up to the end of yourself, when you have worked at something with everything that you have to give, when you have pushed as hard as you possibly can push, when you have sacrificed everything that you possibly have to sacrifice, and you're still coming up short, and you're up to the end of yourself, and you're asking, what then? What's next when I don't have anything else to give, when I don't have anything else to sacrifice? What then? Now, you, you have these seasons of life, and they could be smaller things along the way. Some of you may be trying to, trying to take the summer to exercise or eat better, or like whatever it is, but, but you have that moment, right, within that, where the encouragement, where, where the celebration sort of fades, and you come into the season where you're discouraged, where you feel like giving up, where you come to the end of yourself, where you say, I don't have anything else to give in this trek to, like, get healthier, but this morning, we're not talking about just the physical stuff. We want to up the ante even more than that and to say there's all kinds of ways in life where we try to get healthy relationally, let's say, get healthy physically or to get healthy spiritually, let's say. You come to a season in life where you're saying to your, to your husband or to your wife, I want to make this work. I want to have the best possible marriage, and I know that what I put in is what I get out. So after three rounds of counseling, after weekend retreats, and there's this like still slow burning bitterness that's going on, and you have nothing else to push with, you have nothing else to sacrifice, and it just isn't enough at that moment, ask the question, what then? Maybe the marriage thing isn't a part of the equation because it's the single thing. And you're, and you're pouring into that, and you're trying to figure out what it means to live a God-centered life in singleness. And you're pushing and pulling, and you're giving it everything you have to give it, wrestling with God, struggling with God, trying to figure out what in the world it means to live a God-centered life in a me-centered world when it comes to your body or to your relationships, when it comes to the people around you. I want to focus in on that one last moment when you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you don't see God at work anymore in your life, when you come to the end of yourself and you don't have anything else to give. What then? Now, fortunately for us, there's a Bible story that speaks exactly, exactly into that moment. 
So if you want to, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and you can go, you go ahead and flip to those. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me, and I just got to say, you know, we, we say every week, like, hey, if you don't have a Bible at home, like, go ahead and take this one. We love that. We just had to order a new case of Bibles because we've given away so many, and we love it. It's the best kind of stealing, right? Just go ahead and take it. It's awesome. But Genesis 32, we're going to go there. We're going to go there today, and it starts off in Genesis 32 in verse 22, and it says, that night, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, that's an entirely different story, we'll get to it later, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay. Um, (laughs) I don't know why that needed to be said. Jacob got up, he took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. Now, just, just a note at that. Because it wasn't just any night, it was that night. Like the storyteller unfolds for us. It wasn't just any time in Jacob's life. It was a particular time. It was a particular night in Jacob's life. It was a particular night that he packs up, he packs up his family at night. And he, and he crossed a river. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. Now, I Crossing a ford of a river, ford is like the, the shallow spot in a river that people were known to, to cross, and it was like a common, like, good place to cross, cross when there's not a bridge available to everybody. So Jacob packs everybody up, and he, like, he crosses over a river at night. Some of you know, because you've got the same job in your family as I do, when it comes time to family vacation, like, you're the one who packs up the van. You're the one who had the car, the SUV, the trailer, the camper. You're the one, like everything is out there, right? On your front porch, maybe in your lawn, if your neighbors don't mind. And you get like prep zone. Kids stay away. Everybody gone. I need to, I need to fit all of this stuff in the back of the van, Tetris style. You know, squeeze it in, squish it in, hear crunching sound. The chips are now crumbs, but that's okay. We have another, you know, battle hill to climb. We got to fit everything in here. And you know how difficult it is to like, to, to smash everything into your van and your, all your family's stuff. Now imagine this. You've got two wives and 11 kids, right? And your van is a camel and you're crossing a river, at night, I want to paint this picture for you because I want you to notice this isn't something that you like casually go out and do. You know, let's just, let's just take everybody and cross a river in the middle of the night. No, no, it's that night because it had to be that night. See, what's going on in the story is that Jacob is actually on the run. He's running away from his past. And more specific than that, he's running away from his brother Esau. And, and I just, I want you to like, I want you to get the sense of the story. At one point we alluded to it because we already said that Jacob had two wives and we're like, I don't think that was okay even then. And you're right. But, but I want us to pry that back and just to see the depth of character, or, or should we say the lack of character that Jacob is exuding throughout his entire life. And Jacob, even the name means the deceiver or the, the trickster, tricky Jake, we're going to call him this morning. Tricky Jake has a long history of playing tricks, of deceiving, of stealing what's rightfully other people's and claiming it as his own. Even when he was born, when he was born, his mom, Rebecca, she had, she had twins. And it wasn't just Tricky Jake, it was also Esau in, in his mom's belly, in the womb. And, and the story goes in the Bible that they were like wrestling with each other inside of her belly. 
And they're going at it. And, and she like prays, she cries out to God, why is this happening to me? Which is something that like every parent has said about their kids at one point or another. She cries out, God, why is this happening to me? When it came time for them to be born, being born first meant everything to kids. Being born first meant you get the birthright and the blessing. Being born first, first meant that, that you, get, um, you get an extra share, a double share of the inheritance of the family. Being born first meant like you were the one to carry on the line. Like there was so much more pressure on you. There was so much more opportunity put on your shoulders if you were born first. And, and the story tells us that even when Jacob and his twin brother Esau were, was born, Esau started coming out first. And the next baby like, like grabs onto his heel as a way of like pulling him down. No, no, me first. No, I want to get there first. No, I want to be the one to steal your place in line, to cut in line ahead of you, which grabbing at the heel was actually an ancient Hebrew idiom that meant trickster, that meant the deceiver. In the Hebrew language, grabbing at the heel, trickster, deceiver, in the Hebrew language, this was called Jacobing. And so his parents, like they came out and his parents, well, the one was all hairy, so they call him Esau, which meant hairy, right? Creative, I know. Uh, the next one comes up grasping at the heel, so they go like, oh, look at that, he's Jacobing. Why don't we call him Jacob? And it was a name that unfortunately he lived into his entire life. His entire life, he was the, he was the deceiver, he was trick, tricky Jake, there was a story in, in, recorded in the Bible when Esau, his older brother, goes out hunting, and he, it took longer than he expected to take, and he comes back, and he didn't take enough food with him, and he was hungry. More than that, he was famished, and he came back, and remember, this is like Bible time, so this wasn't come back and put some Easy Mac in the microwave for 30 seconds, and you've got a gourmet meal. I'm tilting my hand, I know. <laughs> I like mac and cheese, whatever. Uh, it was harder than that, right? They had to cook it, but Jacob stayed back. Jacob was good in the kitchen. Jacob made this batch of stew. Jacob made this delicious soup so that Esau comes back and he is so hungry he can't even see straight. And he goes, Jacob, give me some of that stew that you have. And Jacob says, oh, of course, I'm going to go ahead and do that just as soon as you give me your birthright. I'll feed you just as soon as you give me the thing that's most important to you in this world. And for Esau, I mean, this may have been a momentary lapse in judgment, but, but what kind of brother does that to an older brother? Esau considers his option and has decided, what good to me is a birthright if I'm not around to enjoy it? And so he trades. He trades the thing in the world that is most important to him for what he wants in that exact moment. And if that wasn't enough for Tricky Jake, it didn't just apply to his brother. Oh no, it goes beyond that. When his dad was old and frail and blind and hard of hearing, and it was time for him to pass down his legacy, his blessing, the only thing he has left to give Esau, because the birthright was already taken from him, he sends Esau out to the field to go hunting, to, to catch something, so that they could at least enjoy a meal together before his dad Isaac passes. Except for when Esau is out in the field, Jacob sneaks in pretends to be his older brother and steals not just the birthright but the blessing to go along with it. This is tricky, Jake. When it came to his uncle Laban, 
After that scenario, by the way, Esau was so mad and so fuming, he chases him out of town. His mom, Rebecca, his mom actually said to Jacob, "Um, you should get out of here because your brother's pretty angry. He flees town. He flees the land. Under night, under the cover of darkness, he gets out of there completely. He goes to his uncle, Laban's place, works hard, lots of stories, couple wives, more on that, you know, another time, like I said. But but Laban eventually turns to him one time and says, I want to pay you. What can I give you for all the work that you've offered me? And Jacob says this, I will take the sheep among, among yours that are spotted. You see, it was believed that the, that, that the unblemished ones, the unspotted ones, were, were more pure or, or, or superior, better in some way, form, or another. And so Jacob says, I'll, t- I'll just lowly, you know, worker be, I'll take the spotted ones. Laban says, that's a good deal, goes out of town. Jacob, meanwhile, takes all of the spotted ones, ushers them over by the water trough, while the, all the sheep are in heat, he, he takes the spotted sheep over, mixes them all up so that the entire next generation almost of sheep that are born all come out with spots on. And Jacob goes, oh, that's so weird. I don't know what happened. And he takes all of these sheep and leaves Laban poor. Like, I want you to see the depth of character or, or lack thereof of Tricky Jake in the story. And in fact, when we come to this story, this particular night, that night, what we see in the story that he's on, he's on the run. He's on the run, running away from Esau, running away from his brother that he deceived. We can see a man whose past has caught up with him. It's been 20 years, and Esau has has an army behind him, flocks and herds behind him. And Jacob, under the cover of darkness, has to flee, cross a river with 11 kids at night because he doesn't know what, Jake, what Esau is about to do. And then this happens. Verse 23. Now, after he had sent them, everybody, across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions so that Jacob was left alone. Now, we don't know. We don't know, like, what it was that left him alone. Like, we don't know why he was. No, it's not confirmed. It's not in the story. But I just have this hunch that he was left alone to, like, scheme and to think about, and to think about um, like, his next move, to, to come up with a con, to come up with a lie, to come up with a story to tell his older brother about how everything that happened had to happen. And as he's sitting on a log, contemplating life alone by himself, coming up with his next con or lie or scheme, a man... And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And the story is like, I'm sorry, what? He's sitting there alone on the log. And then all of a sudden, a man comes up and wrestles with him, like just snatches him off the log. And they start, he starts engaging in the fight of his life. The fight of his life that goes on and on and on. Five hours, six hours, seven hours goes by. And he's wrestling with this. He doesn't know who it is. Is it a thief? Is somebody come that, that is, that's trying to rob him, mug him? It can't be because I don't, I don't have anything left. Everything is, everything is across the river, across the stream. I just sent up all my possessions. It says, it's not a thief. It's not a mugger. Maybe around the fifth hour, he, he starts to think, maybe it's Esau. It's been 20 years. Not hairy enough for Esau. Maybe it's somebody that Esau sent, sent over here to kill me at night so that we don't have to even see each other in the day. Maybe he's, maybe he's that mad at me for everything that went down. But, but I think over maybe the sixth turn, seventh hour, as it got into daybreak, like he realizes there's more to this story. There's more to this opponent than what he initially thought. 
And he starts to think, maybe this isn't like a human kind of opponent. Maybe this is a supernatural kind of opponent. And then it's confirmed for him. Verse 25, when, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he, <clears throat> he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. The word for that is dislocated as he wrestled with the man. Now that's what like seals it, right? That it's not just some ordinary person wrestling with him. That, that has to be a divine figure. It, it has to be an angel of God or, or, or somebody because, because nobody just touches a hip and has it dislocated from him. He's, he's up all night. He's wrestling with his angel. He, he's wrestling with this representative of God or, or somebody. And, and all of a sudden, his hip gets touched and, and it's like his leg jumps out of socket. Some of you have had the horrendous experience of a dislocated arm, maybe shoulder, leg, something like that. And it doesn't come without like a howl of pain <laughs> attached to it because it's excruciating. Now think about what it means for Jacob. Think about what it means for the guy who has all the answers, had an excuse for everything, who has a con or a scheme or a lie for anything that comes. Think about it from the perspective of the guy who's always been able to kind of finagle and wiggle his way out of every situation his whole life. You know, he's lying there in the fight of his life and his leg goes limp like a doll's leg and he knows he's out. He knows he doesn't have anything else to give. He knows that he's at the end of himself. And so again, we see that moment, right? We see that question that we asked earlier about what happens? What happens when we've pushed as hard as we can to push? What happens when we've sacrificed everything we have to sacrifice? What happens when we give it everything that we've possibly got? And then in the end, we just come up short. Jacob does the only thing that he can think of. When he's past his breaking point, when he's beyond himself, when he's given everything and is coming up short, the man said to him in verse 26, let me go. It's daybreak. He knows this isn't just an angel. He knows now he's wrestling with the divine because, because nobody was allowed to see God and live. And so now this figure is trying to get away before it's daybreak. He knows who he's got on the other end and he does the only thing that he can possibly do. Let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And just, just see things from, from Jake, Tricky Jake's perspective. I, I want you just to understand, he doesn't have anything left in the tank. He doesn't have a scheme. He doesn't have a lie. The only thing that he has to do is just, is just wrap his arms around and cling on because he doesn't have function of his leg anymore. That's, not a, that's dislocated. That's not a socket. And he just, he just clenches and hangs on to God for dear life. I will not let you go until you bless me. I want us to see this, friends, for, for what it is, right? Because this is, not, this is not an act of holiness. Oh, look at that. He's up all night, metaphorically wrestling with God. The words that are used is like dirt on his face, sweat smeared around. He's tired. He's probably bleeding. He can't walk anymore. He's hanging on to, he's hanging on to God in this fight for his life. This is not a metaphor 
This is not an act of holiness. This is not an act of piety. This is an act of desperation. This is a man without anything left to give. This is a man beyond himself. This is a man who has no options left. An act of desperation keeps them. I will not let you go until you bless me. And then it's at that moment when he's got nothing left in the tank. And it's at that moment when he sacrificed his all. And it's at that moment where he has nothing to offer this figure that he's been wrestling with anymore that God shows up. Jacob says, I'll not let you go until you bless me. And God comes back, not with a blessing, but with a question. God comes back. In verse 27, the man asked him, what's your name? In the context of, a, of the Bible, asking somebody their name, especially here, this isn't just a, hey, what do people like to call you? What do you go by? This isn't just asking what somebody's name is. In the context of the Bible, it's asking, what kind of person are you? It's asking the question, who are you? What's your name? And so I just, I, I, I want to ask you that, like that question, because I think the, the writer here is, is looping us all in, asking us, what do you call yourself? Like, who are you anyway? Outside of your, your birth certificate, what's your name. And remember, J Jacob has lived his whole life as a deceiver, as a con artist. Jacob has, has lied and hurt everybody that he's ever been in close contact with. And now we have this time, this, this moment in his life where he can, he can continue that act. He can continue the charade, keep up appearance. He can make up a name. He could lie to the, to the Lord that he's been wrestling with all night long. Or he could surrender and own it. Now, I want to ask you, in a wrestling match with God that leaves you bleeding and broken and dislocated, when you get to the end and God asks you, who are you? What are you going to say? Are you going to give God your resume? and says, I feel like this pretty well summarizes my strengths and areas of opportunity and my experience set embellished with strong verbs, of course. Are you, are you going to hand over to God your Twitter bio and say, this is a slightly cooler version of myself? Are you going to hand over God a set of Instagram pictures perfectly curated and cropped and filtered to capture your exact right side, your good side, and hand over God and say, this is who I am at my very best, who I pretend to be? Are you going to own it? Own the past. Own who you are. See, what I love about this story is that before God changes him, Jacob is honest with God. And Jacob has to wrestle with God, not just in the physical sense of getting dirty and sweaty and bleeding with him in the mud somewhere. Jacob has to wrestle with God and come to terms with his past, come to terms with who he really is. He has to wrestle with God, and face to face with God, he has to admit to God just exactly what his sin is, his wrongdoing is, just how he has fallen short of the glory that God has set for him, just how much he has stepped off from the path that God has laid out for him, just how broken he really is. 
And so when God asked him that, that question, what's your name? Jacob having nothing left in the tank, nothing more to sacrifice, and at this point in exhaustion, nothing to lose. In one word, he speaks volumes. He says, Jacob, he answered. I'm tricky Jake. Jake the liar. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the person who hurts everybody who comes into contact with me. I'm Jacob the selfish. And right now I'm Jacob the tired. Jacob, he answers. And God receiving this, I think as, a, as an act of repentance, as an act of change, as an act of, of turning away from the old, God says to him, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, and I love this part so much, but Israel, because you have, you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. Your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel because you've struggled with God. Israel struggles with God. Struggles with God in a sense that God comes out on top. You've struggled with the God who fights. You've struggled with the God who prevails. You've struggled with the God who wins. Jacob, this is your new name. This is your new identity. Jacob, this is who you are. You aren't Jacob anymore. You are Israel because God fights for you. This is, so, this is so huge. The theologian Walter Brueggemann um, wrote one time in an author, you don't have to know the name, but, but he wrote about this and he goes, now, now catch that, right? Forever onward in the story of Jacob and now Israel, forever onward, he walks with a limp because the hip never goes back into its socket. Now, you know, get that picture. Jacob walked fine. Jake, Tricky Jake walked fine. Israel is broken Israel is being rebuilt. And Brueggemann offers this. He goes, he goes you can't separate the, the wound and the broke. You can't separate the brokenness from the change. It's like they're inextricable. Because it's almost like God, I love this so much. It's almost like God is reminding, reminding Jacob, Israel, the nation of Israel, and the church, all of us that have come in the past. It's almost like God is reminding each one of us that it's not through our strength that we're, that we're good. It's not through our strength that we have victory over sin and the things that defeat us. It's not through our strength on our own. Oh, no, no, no. The strength of Jacob left him in the state of having nothing and no one left. It's not through our strength that we have victory. Defeat comes with our strength. It's through our, it's through our weakness that God claims victory in our lives. What, like, what a beautiful picture of redemption. I mean, how... How awesome is that? Right? We, we look at that and we see that theme like, like over and over and over and over through the Bible. Because we, we see this like most clearly, we, we, most clearly in the picture of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like have you ever thought and realized for just a minute that we have come and we've sing songs about a God who was crucified? Now forget that. We don't even know what that word means anymore. It's so, it's so pretty. Have you ever thought that, that we serve a God who was murdered? who was strung up on who died for us? Have you ever thought, like, we serve a God who took all of the strength in the universe, the real definition of what it means to be strong and capable, and he sets those things aside 
takes on the form of weakness and dies in our place. As Jake, now Israel, walks, limps through life, it is a constant reminder that in those moments of pain, in those moments of struggle, in those moments of desperation where we give everything we have to give, sacrifice everything we have to sacrifice, and don't have anything else, it's in those moments that God shows up. I want you to be honest. Is that where God shows up? If you're to take my life, if you're to take my devotional life, my spiritual life, my seasons of life where I, where I sense the presence of God nearest, where I'm in the Bible the most, on my own, not for this morning, if you were to take those seasons in life where I pray the most and I'm, in, and I'm engaged the most, and you were to look at those ups and downs like we all have ups and downs. I have a stage and a mic, but I'm no different than it. Right? You take these things and ups and downs. And all of a sudden you were to take those, those seasons in life where things are hard. Where my health is failing or somebody close to me is failing. Those seasons in life when finances aren't clicking like they need to be and, and work isn't clicking and marriage isn't clicking like it should, like it once did. If you're to take those seasons of life, and this is, this is unbelievable, but, but if you were to take those and to align them on top of each other chronologically, what you would see is the worst things got in my life, the closer I became to God. That the struggle doesn't pull me away from God. The monotony of an everyday life that's easy to run, that pulls me away from God. That the struggles in life, the pain, the brokenness in life pulls me closer and closer to God. Perhaps out of an act of desperation, having nothing else to offer of my own, but but driving towards God every time. And I don't want it to be that way. And I wish it was a different way. I wish that I, I loved God as much out of the valley, on the mountain, as I did in the valley. But it strikes me, though, doesn't it, that that God doesn't reserve the toughest battles for the strongest soldiers. He creates the strongest soldiers out of the toughest battles. That when you come to the end of yourself, you find the beginning of God. When you come to the end of your own strength, you find the beginning of God's strength. May he bring you to that point of desperation. May you get there quickly and easily. May you get there like Abraham did, his grandfather. May you get there like Isaac did, his dad. May you go to God quickly. But for the rest of us Jacobs out there, for all of you Jacobs Church, God is giving you a new name. He's giving you the name Israel because God fights when you can't. God struggles when you can't. God prevails when you have nothing else to give. And if I could just add one more onto this, because I just love this part. I almost skipped it coming in here, but it's too good not to, so I'm going to say it anyway. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then, and then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, 
saying it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He said, Peniel, once, and then again in verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was, and he was limping be, because of his hip. He says it twice, Peniel, Thousands of years later and halfway around the world, it doesn't make any sense to say the name of the place, Peniel, twice. It means nothing to us now. But when you, when you line up the ancient location of the city, Peniel, along with the river Jabbok that he crossed a little ways earlier to figure out exactly where that location is, you'll see that it's on, on one of the exact borders, albeit fuzzy, but one, close by to the border of ancient Canaan, then Israel. You see, keep in mind, Jacob grew up hearing the stories from his dad Isaac about the, the promised land, the land that God promised, the land that God promised to his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham met God and God said, this, all of this, I'm going to give you someday. When that family walked down a dirty, dusty road, they weren't just walking on a road, they were walking on the tangible expression of God's faithfulness to their family. But when Jacob deceived Esau 20 years earlier, under the cover of darkness, he had to flee the land, flee Canaan, flee what would be called Israel someday under the cover of darkness, leave. And he comes back across the, the border river Jabbok at the city of Peniel, coming back into the land, no longer as Tricky Jake the deceiver, now as Israel, because God fights not under the cover of darkness, but as the sun is rising above him, he is a new man and a new creation. And so are you, church. So are you. God has remade you as you put your hope and your life into his hands. That is his promise, that he will give you a new name. No longer the sinner, liar, schemer, cheater, but a forgiven, redeemed, new creation. Church, Israel. And so I want to ask one last time, church, what is your name? Stand up if you would. We're going to close out this time together by singing a song that offers all the honor and all the praise and the fame and the glory to him and to him alone. But as we do that, I want to remind you, church, that Jacob's story isn't over. You go home, you read the rest of that one on your own because Esau who he hasn't seen in 20 years since he ripped off his blessing and his birthright, Esau is waiting on the other side of the river. And Jacob, Israel, is still wondering, what's his encounter with Esau going to hold? What's this new battle going to hold? But you know, Jacob doesn't go out and fight that battle. Because Jacob is done. And the way of sin is done. And the way of lies are done. And the way of cheating and the schemes and the cons are done. Jacob stays back. Israel moves on. Israel meets Esau. Jacob doesn't fight. Jacob doesn't lie. Israel goes on and God fights. And God struggles. And God prevails. 
So church, as you head into this week and you face your Esau battle ahead of you, Jacob, you stay behind and you don't take the low road of sin and destruction, but you take the road of life. You take the Israel road. You take the road where God fights, where God struggles, where God and God alone prevails. And the glory is his and the fame is his and the honor is his and his alone. Amen.